Well, I invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 6 and let us stand together for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent." But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. 
only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent. I'm sure you could tell that from the hymn selection uh, today. And some of the texts that we've read refer to Christ's coming again. Uh, Of course, Advent consists of the four Sundays before Christmas. And the term Advent comes from the Latin word for coming or arrival. And Advent is a time of expectant waiting and preparation for both the celebration of the incarnation of Christ at Christmas, but also the return of Christ at the second coming. Now, the book of Joshua is not a part of the Bible that typically typically gets preached upon during Advent, but it is actually perfect for anticipating the coming of of Christ, especially as we enter into this part of the book that deals with the conquest of the promised land. And we begin the conquest here in chapter 6. Everything leading up to this point has just been them getting to, uh, into the land and ent- entering the land as they crossed the Jordan in the previous chapters. Well, I want you to understand a couple of things, uh, to take notice of a few things and, and understand a couple of things from this account. And the first thing that I want you to see is that the ungodly receive judgment. The conquest of the promised land was an act of judgment by God on the Canaanites. As we read the description here of the the battle, uh, it's quite uh, graphic and gruesome. But we need to understand a couple things about this. This was not, first of all, a racial cleansing. It wasn't just that they were getting rid of all of the Canaanites. Um, If it were, then Rahab and her family would not have been saved and been invited to become part of the nation of Israel. Indeed, she became a grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. The conquest was also not simply imperialistic expansion. The Israelites are forbidden from plundering uh, the goods uh, of, of Jericho, and they were forbidden from enslaving the people, as would typically happen if this was simply one nation taking over another nation. Rather, the purpose of this mission was not to become prosperous and powerful, but rather to create a country in which the Israelites could serve and honor God. If you go back to Deuteronomy, where Moses is uh, is telling this second generation of people on the Exodus, he's telling them before they enter the promised land, he's he's renewing the covenant they have with God. And he says there in chapter 9, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness 
of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So the whole point uh, is not that that, uh, you know, it's just getting rid of the Canaanites or, or any other reason, but because of their wickedness. Uh, Moses in Leviticus ch uh, chapter 18, he forbids is in the giving of the law such things as incest and homosexuality, bestiality, child sacrifice. And then in verse 24, after he lists off these forbidden uh, sins, he says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by, thee, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations." either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then again in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses tells this generation, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So this conquest is an act of judgment. Israel is being used by God to bring punishment upon the Canaanites. And one theologian uh, calls this the intrusion ethic. God, of course, knows the end from the beginning. He alone has the right and the knowledge to see persons who will be condemned on judgment day and to bring a judgment down on them early. Thus God, the judge of all, can determine to mete out justice on them now rather than waiting for the last day. Therefore, the future judgment intrudes on the present. And that's why he calls it the intrusion ethic. And this is not unusual because the blessings of the gospel are also an intrusion of the future grace that we'll have in the new heavens and earth, but we're experiencing it even now. So both are true, judgment and grace. So when we look at this particular act of judgment upon Jericho, it's a foreshadowing of judgment day. 
the judgment day, which will occur when Jesus returns. And that brings us to our Advent celebration, anticipating the coming of Jesus. This time, he, is, he will not become uh, becoming as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, but he will come as a great warrior on a white horse, as he is described in Revelation 19. The one sitting on that white horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, from, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." The fall of Jericho is similar to the fall of Babylon in the book of Revelation, chapter 18 and 19, where the saints follow the sword-bearing lamb in triumph. There's even seven trumpets being blown here in Jericho, just like there are seven trumpets mentioned in the book of Revelation. Chapters 8 through 11, announcing plagues of judgment. And then the seventh trumpet, we read, about, we read about it in our call to worship, which is accompanied by a loud shout, just like at Jericho. But this time the loud shout says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Cue the hallelujah chorus. If I could sing it, I would. The Gospel Transformation Bible, uh, Study Bible says this, Ultimately, the enemies of Yahweh and his saints, Pharaoh, the Canaanites, Babylon, are merely servants of the enemy who is to be finally cast into the lake of fire. The story behind all these stories is the war between the seed of the woman, who is Christ, and the serpent that we read about all the way back in Genesis 3.15 where God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. History is his story. Everything is about this ultimate battle. Jericho is just one of the many micro uh, battles in this greater battle between Christ and the forces of evil, ultimately Satan. And Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Our shorter catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. See, Christ is returning, and he's going to bring judgment upon the ungodly, just like judgment came upon Jericho. There is that greater day, the last day, when Christ will judge the world. Are you ready for that day? You know, history is his story. We're often consumed with writing our own story. You know, what is my place, you know, in the world? What, what do I want to be and do in my life? But we need to be a part of his story. How do I fit into his story? Because it's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about him. That's what the world is all about. And if you're not considering that at all in your life, then you're missing out on the whole purpose of this world that we live in, this universe that we live in. That one day, Christ will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and, and there will be no other nations. There will be no United States of America. It will all be his kingdom forever and ever. Are you ready for that day? Which side are you on? Are you going to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire? Or you, will you be inheriting the kingdom of God in Christ? There is a judgment day. That's the first point. The second thing I want you to see is that believers receive a kingdom. Believers receive a kingdom. So Jericho not only points us to the day of judgment, it also tells us something about how the kingdom of God is received. Now look at verse 1 and 2. It tells us that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with his king and mighty men of valor. I have given it to you. See, the emphasis falls on God's action, not Israel's action. God informs Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand. Even before the actual surrender, victory is already an objective fact. I made the point in earlier chapters that when Joshua sent the spies to spy out the land and to go into Jericho, he didn't need to do that. It was really an unnecessary act because God told him he's going to give him the promised land. Now, Joshua's being a good leader, and uh, of course, this is all part of God's plan, particularly in Rahab's case and her family. But God is doing it. God is giving the victory. And then in verse 16, after they, the seventh time and the priests blow their horns and, the, and Joshua says to the people, shout, the Lord has given you the city. The Lord has given you the city. And the Ark of the Covenant features prominently in all this. God was present with them, doing the fighting himself. Israel is not working to attain, but is rather receiving a kingdom. God fights while Israel simply announces with their horns that the king has come and he's taken over and they inherit 
the victory. Just as God triumphs over Jericho on behalf of his people as they look on, so Jesus triumphs over Satan on behalf of believers as we look on. Believers simply inherit the kingdom by grace, not by works. And Rahab is a prime example. Yes, she did something. She hid the spies, as pointed out a couple of times in the text we read. But why did she hide the spies? Why? Because she believed in Israel's God. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, she says, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, she believed. It was by faith. And that's why she hid the spies. That was fruit of her faith. She believed, and she and her family were saved from judgment, and they became part of God's people. Indeed, she becomes a great-grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Gospel Transformation Bible says this, Just as everything belonging to the ungodly is devoted to destruction, everyone belonging to a believer is declared holy, like Rahab and her family. This corporate solidarity runs counter to the sensibilities of modern individualism and democracy. Yet it is crucial for understanding the biblical concept of covenantal identity. As goes the leader, so go the people. As go the family head, so goes the family. The New Te Testament picks up this interpretive principle to explain that all those in Adam share in his fate of death while all those in Christ share in his fate of eternal life. Everyone is united to Adam uh, by birth. It's only by faith that we're united to Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man, Adam, came death because he sinned, and he passed on his sin nature to all of us, as in Adam... Uh, uh, came, uh, as in, by a man, Adam, came death. By a man, Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Christ is going to bring judgment, but those who are united to him by faith get life, eternal life, are joint heirs with Christ in his kingdom. By birth we're united to Adam. It's by faith that we're united to Christ. Just like Rahab, she believed in Israel's God. Just like Rahab, by faith, was united to God and his people, we, by faith in Christ, are united to God and his people. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, talks about the kingdom of God. And he says there, and, and notice how this is similar to the uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus uh, accounts that I read earlier. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As we are here today, maybe some of you are unrighteous, unholy, and those descriptors fit you. But you can be washed and cleansed and sanctified, made holy and justified before God, right in His eyes, by faith. It's not by your works. I'm not telling you to try harder or work harder or get the victory on your own. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and sit back and receive the victory and become part of the kingdom. Believers receive a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. When Christ returns, we anticipate that. We will be a part of his kingdom forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we celebrate the advent of Christ, let's all remember Jesus is coming again and live accordingly. Be prepared for his coming. Be prepared by faith. Be prepared by holiness as well. Jesus is coming again. May we not be caught unaware. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand the gravity of your coming. Lord, we often live flippant lives, not thinking about eternal things at all. Just thinking about our own creature comforts, our own pleasures, our own, our own goals, our own story that we want to write. But Lord, I pray that all of us here today would consider how we're fitting into your story. Because that's what all of this is about. And Lord, I pray that you would wash us, sanctify us, justify us, cleanse and renew us. Lord, some of us have grown cold and formal in our relationship with you. Lord, renew our zeal. Some people here do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of faith. Draw them to yourself. Help them to see that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.